Listener Production. Reese Nicholson is a multi-award winning Australian stand-up, writer, actor and most importantly, in my humble opinion, judge on RuPaul's Drag Race Down Under. Welcome to the family, Reese. Well, thank you so much, but I'm confused. Do I call you father or mother? Call me the one who signs your checks. Oh, so I call you daddy. (laughs) His stand-up comedy is daring and honest, witty and wildly inappropriate in the best possible way. Reese may look like the kind of guy you can take grandma along to see on stage, but his work is probably better suited to a fiercely acerbic crowd. Lovely of you to come out, ladies and gentlemen, said no one's grandparents. I, I, um... (laughs) That's about the level of the joke, so get on board. Toot, toot. But what goes on beneath the veneer of that pale skin and shock of perfectly coiffed red hair? I sat down with Reese Nicholson to talk about everything from being bullied at school to falling in love, from making a political stand to walking the runway on Drag Race. My name is Jamila Rizvi and welcome to The Weekend Briefing. Coming up next, Tate McGregor will join me for The Weekend List to recommend what to watch, see, do, eat and listen to this weekend. But first... Here is my conversation with Reese Nicholson. Reese Nicholson, welcome. <laughs> we are starting with a laugh. Welcome to the weekend briefing. How are you doing today? I'm all right. I'm all right. I'm in Adelaide. So, you know, I don't know what I mean by that, but I'm in Adelaide. And so I'm happy to be talking to people. Yeah, me as well. We are both staying away from home at the moment. I'm in Sydney and we are not going to share any video with you, everyone, because we are both ashamed of our hotels and Airbnbs. Yeah, I like to keep an idea that I'm a millionaire and that you, that I'm staying in some like Shangri-La place and... Um, and that I, I'm doing this from a huge bathtub. There's a lot of bubbles and so there's no nudity. But, yeah, I'm a millionaire. I just want you to know. <laughs> You're above showing off about it. You know what I mean? You're, like, not that guy. Yeah, no. I'm just happy in my Adelaide, air, air, like, out-of-suburb out of Airbnb with a deep blue feature wall. But, Reese, you didn't grow up in the life of being a billionaire. Tell me about you at school. I grew up in Newcastle, New South Wales, on the coast. Um, there's lots of sun there and I was not built for that. I, I went to a couple of schools. I went to Hamilton South Primary School and uh, not they weren't the kids there, not huge fans of me. Um, and then I went to um, Hunter School of Performing Arts, which was like a, it's like a selective school you had to audition to get into, which was always weird to me because you would audition. It was a K to 12 school as well. So I got in in like year six. But kids, sometimes kids got in in like year one or year two and the idea is that, you know, they auditioned, they played the clarinet or they did like a little monologue or something. But by the time they got to year seven, they didn't want to be performers. Like, you know, it's like it's, that's a really early gamble. Yeah. <laughs> I feel like by the time you're 13, 14, there's kind of an idea that you might want to be a performer of some sort. <laughs> when you're like eight, it's like we are putting all our chips on the table and by the time you're 18, you are going to be a wonderful singer who's still... So it was like an interesting mix of... Very theatery, like fame people, and then just skaters that maybe did a couple acting lessons when they were like eight, 
And so there was a lot of very happy people there and a lot of very unhappy people there. <laughs> so what about you? Did you go into that school knowing what kind of performing you wanted to do or were you originally in the fame mould? No, I was like, I, I went in, no, I think I wanted to be an actor. You know, I did drama lessons on the weekends and that kind of stuff, which I, th- I think is often if you're a bit of a, I was a bit of trouble when I was a kid. Like I was very attention-seeking Um like just wanted people looking at me all the time and acted up a lot. Mm. And I think parents just put kids in, like, and also I was pretty camp. And so I think that's kind of a way of like, well, he's very dramatic. That's like a really diplomatic way to describe little queer kids. <laughs> to be, he's, um, he loves the spotlight, you know. Mm. I wanted to be an actor, but then what has gotten in the way since is I cannot act. Stand up, like I reckon I was about 13 and I, I started watching, like, every year the Melbourne International Comedy Festival, the galas would come on, and I still in my family home have probably about a decade's worth of VHSs of them, and I would watch them, like, over and over and over, like, as in throughout the year. Like, I would just kind of on a on a loop would when one was finished, I'd just start the next one. And it sounds <laughs> quite mental saying that in retrospect, but I just loved, I just, as soon as I realised what stand-up was... I was like, oh, that, I reckon that's what I want to do. Because in the drama lessons that I used to do, I used to do this kind of weekend theatre, young people's theatre, that is still a thing in Newcastle. Um, I never was good at learning lines. I always would like kind of enter a scene, know where the scene started, know where the scene ended, and the middle was kind of I had decided was mine and must have been a nightmare to perform with and to have to teach me. But as soon as I kind of, when I was about 16, I did this thing called Class Clowns, which is run by the Comedy Festival, which is like an open mic competition for under 18s. And I was like, oh, yeah, no, this is it. Like, I want to do this. And then I kind of started gigging badly from about 17 onwards. You know, if any police are watching uh, or listening, I definitely did not go to bars, get on the train and go to bars in Sydney with a fake ID and try and do stand-up. Um I always thought the bouncers must have been very confused when I came in on one name and then performed under another. By the time I turned 18, I moved to Sydney and then just kind of started. I was really bad for a long time. A lot of the gatekeepers in stand-up, especially for, like, live comedy club kind of stuff, the good ones have a good eye for, like, oh, you're really bad at this right now, but I reckon in, like, five years you're going to be pretty good at it. So tell me, were your parents supportive? Because the story of a lot of artists and a lot of comedians is that they had their version of the pathway of a job they wanted to do and their parents wanted them to do the sensible thing, right? They wanted them to have a regular income and superannuation. Like it sounds though for you with performing arts school, maybe your parents backed you from the beginning? Absolutely. Both my parents are artists. My dad is a ceramicist and now my mum is now a school principal and she, you know, I think I was talking to um, Denise Scott about this recently, about how her mother, there is a lot of parents do always have a kind of, doesn't matter how successful you get, they still have a little bit of a, um, you know, there's still, like Denise was saying, her mum even when she was like on TV all the time, her mum would still be like, you know, there's still time to become a nurse. My mum, I think because when I was a kid, 
they kind of had a bit of financial troubles when I was a kid and not in any like, but because they were both artists and it was the 90s and it was a tough time and they lived in Newcastle and, you know, kids, they had kids and blah, blah, blah. And so my mum became a teacher, um, an art teacher and something she really loves and is really passionate about. And I think it probably, you know, made her a lot happier in the long run. But she, when I was first studying, there was always a little bit of a, you know, you could, you could get your dip head <laughs> as like a bit of a backup. Yeah. And I think, um, I think it purely came out of like, I'm so lucky to have the parents that I have. They are like blindly supportive, like from the get go. And like I say, like I was really bad at it for a long time. And my dad used to drive me to gigs sometimes and like come in and watch. And he must have been like, ooh, ooh, this, this is going to be a, a hard life for this boy. Um, but, uh, but no, I, I think they were more out of love and out of, I don't want you to go through what we went through. I think there was always, I think sometimes artists have a little bit of a, you know, I think, and I think often the children of creative people kind of go the other way. Like, I, but both my sister and I, we both work in the arts. And I think because we just have really um, parents who only in retrospect do I realise that there were times that we had a bit of a tough, like, like they were just really good at making it seem like everything was fine. <laughs> When we hear stories that, you know, when you become an adult and you, you like a, a story, like your, your parents kind of become more like kind of older friends that you have and they like tell you a story and you go, what? Oh, I thought, so we had no money then? It's like, yeah, no, we literally didn't have any money then. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Just to back up. Yeah, like that type of stuff. And it's like, oh, and you suddenly realise, God, I've been like such a dick to you over the years. Like you have those moments where you're really rude to them like everyone's been mean to their parents at some point or their guardians and to realize that like oh you were like doing your absolute best yeah (laughs) wow making it real so tell me tell me about being in the comedy scene and getting better how do you keep track of something like that could you feel yourself becoming more confident and more accomplished I think so I think there's like there's a few little moments where you know when you first start any kind of artistic endeavour, I think everyone does a thing where they're doing what they think people will like. Yeah. Like when you first start, you emulate someone, whether you, whatever, you can be a painter and you're like, I'm going to do it in this style because I like this artist. And then you kind of develop your own style of that. But yeah, there was a while, the first, my first kind of two years in stand-up, I definitely wanted to be like a very shocking, like, because I loved really full-on comedians. But then with that, you know, stuff like early Sarah Silverman, is like incredible. It hasn't dated well. And even she says that she's like, this is not good anymore. But at the time it was like, I couldn't believe that someone was able to talk about these things and and do it this way. What I didn't know at the time is she had 20 years of experience and knew exactly what she was doing. And it was like a, you know, there's a precision to it. Whereas I was just going up and saying stuff. Reese, I want to ask about your wedding because during the marriage equality I don't want to say debate, but... Fun time. (laughs) Fun times of the plebiscite, leading up to the plebiscite vote. You did get married. Can you tell me about that? Yeah, it was this thing. So another just... I I always, like, am happy to gush about it because I was such a small part of it. Like, I was part of the syncing up of it, but it was, again, like, Zoe Kumsma, she... We were in Edinburgh Fringe... Uh, at a late show together and Zoe plays this character that she's touring this year called Dave. Yeah. And Dave is like basically just the worst open mic comedian in Australia and it's like he's a he's a pretty incredible amalgam of a lot of like just the worst parts of, um, you know, the kind of 
comedians who are obsessed with Joe Rogan and like think that Louis C.K. is fine. <laughs> and we were sitting backstage and we walked past a mirror together and I was wearing like a kind of pressed nice white suit and we walked past a mirror and I said, oh, we look like the worst gay wedding toppers. Like just we look like these like sad, like someone's really punching up. And then we went and got drunk and then the next day we were having lunch together and she was the she was like, I've, I've kind of had this, I was laying in bed last night and I was thinking about what you said and I've kind of had this idea and I think it could be pretty funny. I think we should be the first gay married couple. I think we should get married at the Melbourne Comedy Festival if they'll let us do it and it's kind of a protest and we could get a lot of people involved and I was like, that's really funny. And both our partners were away, like in Australia still, so we that day called our partners, we're like, hi. Hey. <laughs> would you mind if I married another person in like six months? And at this point, Kyron, my partner and I, we were engaged. And so he had to kind of be like, oh, and we got kind of rushed up in the idea and we're really excited about it. And only months and months later after the wedding were we like suddenly like Zoe's partner Kate wrote a, wrote a story for The Guardian kind of about it. And only when reading that was I like, oh, like this was kind of full-on thing for you guys to hear. Like because there's so much... um symbolism involved in it that even if you're kind of not interested in getting married kind of seeing your partner get married to another person must be really full on did you legit get married so what we did was we signed paperwork but we never filed it partly because you know it was a charity event we were we were raising money for minus 18 and the divorce would have been expensive to have to get it to to get it married and annulled would be too expensive and we felt like it would be like better for the charity. I am very glad you didn't file the paperwork. Yeah. It all got kind of planned. And this is like also, so Hannah Gadsby was our MC because we're kind of mates with her. We pitched her the idea in Adelaide. And weirdly, there's a clip of it online. There are parts of it that ended up, we'd kind of said, oh, can you write like a little speech at the start? Like even just like four minutes or something. And then she sent us what she'd written and it was about like a 12-minute of just like even just reading it was like, oh, this is like a thing. Like this is going to be a, like a bit of a thing. Marriage is between a man and a woman to the exclusion of all others. <laughs> Although we all are excluded, I would like to make special mention to Kyron and Kate as the long-term partners of Zoe and Reese. That exclusion takes on special meaning. <laughs> But when one is queer, one is used to exclusion. The incredible producers at the Comedy Festival did so much of it where we would have meetings where we flippantly would say, it'd be funny if this happened, it'd be funny if we had a choir, it'd be funny if this happened, and then we got there on the day and it was all there. It was all happening. We had Denise Scott, Judith Lucy, Celia Pacola were our flower girls. Geraldine Hickey went down the centre with, like, an incense thing. Our parents were there. And an interesting conversation I had with Zoe's parents afterwards were that they also were quite emotional because, as, especially I think as a parent, yeah, to watch your daughter walk down the aisle in a white dress, even if it's at a jokey charity event where she's dressed as a man in a white dress marrying another man, it was all her mum was kind of bawling. At the end we were like, well, we should sign a will. So Will Anderson walked out and we signed him. <laughs> And then he walked off. Like it was just, it was so dumb, but it was also just really, I'm not someone who's like usually sincere about things, but it, it was a genuine 
kind of honoured to get to be involved in it. Like I, I had two lines. Like that was my, we did all the planning, but then once it got going, Zoe and I were a very small part of it. It was kind of so many equal parts. At a certain point, um, we just wanted some chaos. So we we had a whole bunch of comedians planted throughout the audience and a fight broke out and they all had like sugar glass bottles. So they were like smashing bottles. Like we wanted at no point for the audience to feel comfortable. When the celebrant said marriage is between a man and a woman to the exclusion of all others, a big, huge banner at the back rolled down that had it written on it. And we were like, no, really, look at that. Look at that phrasing and tell me that's okay. It was all pretty, um, pretty, it was a lot, but a, a fun. And I'll never, I'll never stop talking about it. What an amazing event to contribute to the campaign, right? And a campaign that was won. You were victorious. So yeah. bravo to everyone involved, I say. I do want to know though, how will you feel when you get married again? Yeah, I'm a, no, I'm a divorcee now. Um, <laughs> my partner and I, Karen, we were meant to get married in May 2020. And I don't know if you heard this, there's, there's been a bit of a flu going around, a um, bit of a spicy cough. And, you know, we cancelled it and then we, when things, remember there was like a magical time, even like a, about 18 months ago, where it seemed like it might be okay again, like, and things started to open. It was before Australia had proper numbers, I reckon. We'd gone into a lockdown and then we kind of came out. We started planning the wedding again and then cancelled it again. And then at, at a certain point we were just like, let's just wait until everything's fine, until we can do it. We talk about it a lot. We had a lot of friends say, well, why don't you just do a Zoom wedding or something like that? And I don't know if this is just a particularly queer perspective or, but when we're kind of not attached to the paperwork of it. And to be honest, we've been together for coming up on 11 years. We own a house together, like, you know, we're all of that's kind of tied up. We're de facto and stuff, but it's more about the, I want the party. I want to be able to have a couple hundred people of my closest and just also people that they bring to come and hang out. And, you know, even our wedding itself, we want it to be, the wedding itself is going to be super short. I, I, I don't want anyone to be bored. I'm going to treat it like a show. No long speeches. No, that is kind of how I feel about marriage, I think, is that it's a, you know, we get to publicly say, yeah, it's this forever, probably, hopefully, and have our friends be like, great, let's dance and get drunk and stuff. And it's a kind of, I don't know, I feel so hokey saying it, but it is, yeah, it's like a celebration. Yeah. Around the marriage equality debate, people were talking a lot as if it was this kind of like, I I would see people arguing, it's like, well, you can still be de facto. And you can still be all these things. And it's like, yeah, but, and also, you know, there's all these other arguments that were like, well, yeah, at that time, if Kyron had have been in a car accident, I don't really have any rights over his hospital and his parents, blah, 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 blah. A lot of rights come with marriage and just not, not, but also just not feeling safe to have that day was like a huge part of it. Yeah. And as you say, I think the key word is celebration there, right? Yeah. The people you love get to come and celebrate your relationship. I need to ask about Drag Race because (laughs) actually it's remarkable that I've gone this long and not done so. I have held myself back. So what I want to start by doing is asking you how it all came about. Like, do you get a phone call from RuPaul? How does this situation go down? Yeah, I just I, he was texting me constantly and I was like, leave me alone, man. <laughs> I don't want to do your show. 
there's been the kind of idea of at first it was an it was Drag Race Australia has been floating around for about four years I reckon and like I'm a fan of the franchise like a big old fan and so I'm like a I recently I saw this I have a secret name on Facebook and so they don't know but I'm still in like some groups like some Facebook groups of about the American season and years ago I got reminded in memories someone said um, in one of those groups like oh. If, if there was an Australian drag race, what would you want to see in it to, like, the group? And I would jokingly written guest judge Reese Nicholson because it seemed like such an impossible dream. Also, guest judge. Aim for the stars, Reese. And then so then the conversation are kind of coming around and it felt very like, oh, I'm not, I'm not, I'm absolutely not in the running to be a judge, but I, maybe I'll get to come in to be one of those directors. Maybe they'll do a stand-up challenge, you know, four or five years ago. Because you often on the show don't, they're not always a famous person. They're just like a person that is okay at their job or good at their job, uh, more than okay. Then that disappears. About like, yeah, it'd be about 18 months ago um, before season one, it, the, it perked up again and it was like, this is going into production and they're looking for judges. And I got told that I was on the long list and that apparently Rue had been given a long list of people and um, was kind of, they were whittling it down. And even my agent, who's an incredible agent, but she was like, don't hold your breath. Like there's some, I've heard some of the names on the list. It's some big old names. And then on a Sunday at about 8.30 in the morning, I got a call from my agent, which is bad news usually. Like if if you're getting a call on a Sunday at 8.30, it's like, yeah, someone's dead or they've found the tweets and uh, you're cancelled. It's over. It's over. We had a good run. <laughs> it's been cancelled. All she said was he picked you. Wow. <laughs> And I was like, what? Like, Elsa had no context, like, what she was talking about at all. And I was like, what do you mean? And she's like, RuPaul picked you. You're doing the show. And then, like, it was only about a month and a half until we were doing it. And then the first time I actually met Ru was, like, on the runway. Wow. Like, he, I'd kind of become a little bit, like, I had to go in New Zealand to do hotel quarantine. Yeah, yeah. Michelle and I had been texting a little bit. And then she Skyped me one day. Skyped. Wow, that's showing my age. And now then we kind of became buddy buddies and kind of text all the time now. And, yeah, Rue is like I still, I reckon in, we've just finished filming season two and he is, I would not say like he's not like our best friend, but he's a good boss. You know what I mean? Like I think it's also that thing I kind of gave up on. I think in these jobs sometimes you think, oh, this very, very famous person is potentially going to be a monster. <laughs> Because you just don't know. When you meet these people, you don't know. And same like years ago, years ago I did Conan and I, you just kind of prepare yourself that like these people could be not good people. And I've met now two of my heroes and they're fine. They're like Rue is genuinely one of the most interested, funny and just lovely people I've ever met and genuinely interested in your life and what you're doing and your family. But the, it took me, I reckon, two weeks to just not be sitting next to Rue and be going, oh, my God, you're Rue. You're RuPaul. I can't believe you're RuPaul. Yeah, I don't know how you were funny and made jokes. Well, the first two episodes of the first season, I wasn't, I think. (laughs) I got a real nice edit. Blame it on the edit. But I was so cotton-mouthed that I just said some wild stuff in that first that is not kind of not on my brand, but just, like, just making a lot of reference to balls and stuff, which is, like... I do do that, but just I think, you know, when you find someone's sweet spot of comedy and I just kept prodding that, like he loves really dumb stuff. He loves really silly. He's obsessed with Auntie Donna, 
who's like an Australian sketch group, he is obsessed with them. And so he is also this kind of culture vulture, I think, that he just kind of has his ear to the ground. Like, who? Imagine RuPaul, like, scrolling through Netflix and going, what is this Auntie Donna show? I'll give that a try. And then he watches all their clips, like, and we have the same agent, so I gave him some merch. Anyways. I do find that. Like, is he laughing at the cheese before dinner skit the same way I do? Yeah. 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 He loves, and he loves that kind of stuff. The weirdest was just before I got the job, I figured something was going on because he out of nowhere tweeted about my Netflix special. And so I was, I, but I figured like, oh, he's doing the research or something. But that was a wild day <laughs> to just be like, excuse me? So tell me, I need to know when you are on the runway and you guys are giving, as the judges, yeah. these incredible puns and quips and it's so quick and so fast and so clever, do you pre-write them or are you in the moment? No, you can't. So this was a big shock to me as well. I thought there would be, you know, I thought there would be maybe writers or no. And I think that's like, you know, I think potentially if there's someone on, we've not had it on our show, but I reckon my theory is on the on the American show they might help some of the kind of bigger stars that sometimes seem a bit, you know, like one of my favourite things on the show, the American version, is to see... <laughs> Big stars who maybe haven't watched it, <laughs> like who kind of don't really know why the, what they're doing there. Um, I think they might help them a little bit, but for the most part, do you know who's incredible at it? Michelle. Yeah. Michelle is like out funnies anyone any day of the week. So the, the running of it is that they do two runways, but they're in quick succession. So we do one to music and it's very loud. Rue likes it very loud in there. And they walk down the runway and they show us if it's got a moving part to it, they will show us that. So as soon as the last girl works off, the music stops and straight away the first girl walks on again, that's when we do our lines. And it's straight away. And then as soon as the runway's over, we go straight into critiques. That's the hardest bit for me is like looking these girls in the face, you know, and being like, you know the hardest you've ever worked in your life? That was not enough today. And I am not a drag queen. But uh, I kind of see myself as like the Paula Abdul of the group. Like I'm just kind of there to have a good time. And um, would well, you know what I mean? Like when she was on Australian Idol, she'd always be like, and you keep doing you, American Idol. Yeah, yeah, you're great. Everyone's played well. Everyone's had a go. Yeah, and I, but I, I kind of see myself as like a conduit for the audience. Like because Michelle and Rue, they're the experts and I'm there. I'm never going to give a critique on an eye or like you're not cinched well enough. But I will say like you were not performing, I know that you can do better than this or, you know, I've seen you work out in the world and this is, you're not giving your best, like that type of stuff. Um, And I'm there to make Rue laugh and make a bunch of dick jokes. (laughs) You have filmed season two but we haven't had the treat of seeing it yet. What can we expect from season two that maybe we didn't get in season one? Plenty of stuff. I think there's some obvious changes that people will see that I'm not going to talk directly about. There's some very positive movements forward. I think the biggest thing is they don't have on their shoulders that this is season one of RuPaul's Drag Race Down Under. Yeah. And so there is this kind of, and I think we all kind of had that as well. I was a lot more relaxed this year, so I think the show is better. Um, We all knew what we were doing. The Queens had a reference point for it. They just had a lot more fun and there is a bit more drama and and it is a bit more... Australian and Kiwi, I think. Like it's a little, it's got more of our flavour inside of it because people had very strong views about parts of it and some of it were founded, some of it wasn't. And I always just think, 
I started saying last year, you know that we're making this for you and not in spite of you, right? Like there's this kind of fandom, and I guess it's just the way that Reddit works now, the way that just the internet in general works, but it's just um, like stop trying to guess who's going to be on it or stop trying to guess who's going to go home or stop trying to say that um, they've never done that on the show before because it, at its heart, and even Rue will say this, it's a competition reality show. <laughs> like it's the, And it's a competition reality show that has really struck a chord and made people really feel seen and that's so important and beautiful. But also at its heart, it's a really silly, fun thing that we all get to make and watch and and along the way change some people's lives, hopefully. I think people take it far more seriously than it is intended. Like I read some of the things, and of course I'm a human being, so of course I'm going to read things. Uh, people always say, don't read the comments. Of course I read the comments. And they're awful. They're kind of trying to guess and trying to, um, you know, there was like last year, spoiler alert, Art Simone was brought back and people were like, how could they? They've never done this before. It's like, and aren't you surprised and shocked? And isn't that what you want from a reality show? Aren't you like, wow, what? Not like furious that this is happening. And yeah, I mean, I would, all I would say as well, like the amount of chat that's always like, this is overproduced and this is blah, blah, blah. Every single thing that happens in that room feels right at the time. I had so many questions when we would uh, finished, I had friends going like, oh, well, they must have, like, the producers must have come in and blah, blah, It's like, no, it is all Rue. It is all in the moment and it's all real. Well, I want to say thank you, Reese, because Drag Race got me through some of the most difficult periods of my life. When I was first diagnosed with a brain tumour, the only thing I could do when I wasn't panicking was to sit down and watch Drag Race and escape to this happy, beautiful, sparkly place. And I hadn't discovered it before that point and I watched so much of it, so much of it. The highlight of the Aussie season in particular for me was you. So congratulations. Oh, thank you. That's so nice to say. And, and I think that is that's so such an incredible relationship to have with it, I think, because that's what it is. Drag Race is, I see it as looking into this other world. Like it is, it is this kind of world created by Rue you know, and it obviously it's made to, in some respects by and for queer people, but it's also, you know, to feel seen, but it is also like to entertain and to give drag to everyone because it is kind of for everyone. And so, yeah, I'm very happy when people have that relationship with it. Thank you for, for the happy, for the beautiful and for the silly. And thank you for being my guest on The Weekend Briefing. Thank you so much for having me. I hope I didn't say a bunch of weird, serious stuff. That's it for my conversation with Reese Nicholson. You can catch him at the Melbourne Comedy Festival right now, folks, so get on it. Don't go away, though, because Tate McGregor is jumping into the studio for The Weekend List. Tate McGregor is here and it is time for The Weekend List. I haven't seen you in a while, Tate. Tell me you've been inhaling, inhaling some great culture. So much to recommend. Where do I begin? But I'm going to start with a listen. Classic me. I love my music. You might know the artist called Gale if you've heard this song. A, B, C, D, E, F, U, and your mom, and your sister, and your job, and your broadcast car, and that's it you call. Okay, I've got it. I've got it. I know that one. 
<laughs> oh, she's across it. Good. She's a 17-year-old from the state. She blew up on TikTok and she's just released an EP called A Study of the Human Experience, Volume 1. That gives me the idea that there's got to be a volume two. But this EP is just as angry as you've heard in ABCDEFU, classic teenage angst, but it's quite diverse. You know, she's angry at herself for sleeping with friends. She's angry at friends who change the way they act around her after she sleeps with them. (laughs) Um, She's angry at like falling in love. You know, there's anger at boyfriends naturally. But again, she's 17 Yet across this holy pee, you can't help but think, how many lives has Gail lived already? She's so young, but it makes sense because she's been in writing rooms since she was 10 years old. Whoa. Um, she's definitely one on my one to watch list for this year. I think she's going to do mammoth things. And if I have two song recommendations that you haven't heard from this EP, it'd be Kitty Pool, the one that the EP closes on. It's a bit more of a ballad or her recent single, Love Starved. I'm so love a bit of angsty pop. <laughs> I do love a little bit of angsty pop. I loved it at 17 and I love it now. It has not gone away, my love for angsty pop. I am going to go in almost as different a direction as possible, uh, Tate. An American in Paris, which is a collaboration between the Australian Ballet and GWB Entertainment, is on at the State Theatre in Melbourne. It'll be touring later in the year for those in other states. Oh, my gosh, it is so good. I didn't quite know what I was going to expect from this particular Broadway musical, which let's face it, it's kind of old school and in the time of like post-World War II, back when all of our shows were just kind of happy and cheery and post-war trying to put a smile on people's faces and didn't have much of a plot. But this is a tour de force. It has some of the most inventive and impressive choreography I have ever seen. It tells the story of a young American soldier and a French girl who he falls in love with. It is set in Paris and it has some songs that you will recognise instantly, including I Got Rhythm But Not For Me, They Can't Take That Away From Me and It's Wonderful. The Orchestra Victoria play the whole score and I don't know if it was just that I'd been away from the theatre for so long during COVID, but I was so teary during this show. I was just completely overwhelmed by the dance in particular. All of these people, all of these performers, singers, actors, dancers alike, who have not been able to perform in front of crowds for so long, being back on stage, doing what they do best, get out there and support them. That sounds like an amazing collaboration of artistic pursuits. Ballet, you've got an insane orchestra, just top tier all around. Sure, it really was. Honestly, cannot recommend it highly enough. What else have you got, Tate? All right, this one's a watch. Um, it's called Genius. It's the three-part docuseries about Ye, a.k.a. Kanye West. You might have heard about this one already, Jamila. But it is insane. So if you don't know about this documentary series, Kanye started filming this in his 20s and it goes really deep. So he made it with one of his Chicago mates called Cootie, who's equally as central to the series because it tracks him dropping everything to film Kanye because he had such this belief in Kanye blowing up. And you'll see Kanye in really early writing sessions with the likes of Jay-Z, for example, and these huge hip hop artists who only see Kanye as a producer and don't take him seriously as a rapper. So it's him trying to break down 
this preconception of him. And even if you're on the fence about Kanye West, you think, you know, whether you love him or hate him, at the end of the day, I think you'll still get a really strong message of willpower and this undertone of self-belief. And then you'll see this evolution, obviously, of him breaking in and just becoming like the hottest thing in hip hop. It doesn't shy away from controversy. It doesn't shy away from mental health. You see this beautiful relationship of Kanye and his mother Donda, who he penned a whole album about and how he falls out of touch with his longtime friends and Cootie kind of goes off and does his own thing. And then these moments of reconnection and how Kanye has changed from fame. But again, if you love or hate him, I think if you're a big dreamer, you'll get something out of this because it goes to show if you stick with it, if you think your ambitions are risky, then you'll totally get there. So it's a heartwarming message at the end. It just gives you a new perspective on Kanye West, the figure that he is. It sounds like an absolute roller coaster of a watch. Thank you for that one, Tate. And to round us out, I've got a recommendation. It's a book this week. Uh, Self-indulgently, folks, it's a book for which I've written the forward to. I haven't written the book, don't worry, (laughs) but I did write the forward because I wanted to endorse this amazing work. It's called We've Got This. It's edited by Eliza Hull and it's a collection of stories by disabled parents. It is incredibly subversive because it shows what's possible in a space where we don't often see people with disabilities portrayed in our literature, on screen, in music, but it tells the stories of a whole bunch of different parents, 25 of them who are deaf, disabled, chronically ill, who discuss their parenting journeys. They discuss the highs and lows. They discuss the bits that came easy, the bits that were more complex. And most of all, I think they unpack other people's attitudes and other people's misunderstandings about their parenting. It is a really beautiful and I would say empowering anthology and it shows that disabled parenting can be joyful and abundant and incredible and not just something where people raise their eyebrows and go, oh, wow, that must be hard. It shows that the hard can coexist alongside the glorious fun that is being a parent, whether you're disabled or not. If you're just someone who's interested in having a look into the world or the experience of someone who's not you and not exactly like you, you would really enjoy it. And I am a disabled parent and it was really interesting reflecting on my parenting from from that perspective of being someone who's disabled and chronically ill and how I find the joy and the benefits that come to my kid of having a disabled mum, not just the tricky stuff. Totally. That's the beauty of all this culture we're consuming. We're learning different perspectives. Culture, 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 Tate. Thank you for joining us on the weekend briefing. Thank you for your list recommendations. It is always so lovely to see your smiling face. That is it for the weekend briefing today. Thank you for being with us. If you want to make sure that you never miss an episode, then you can find us in the listener app and you can follow us there or you can subscribe and follow us wherever you are listening to your podcasts. We will be back bright and early on Monday morning with the latest headlines straight to your headphones where Tom and the team will help wake you up in the morning. Listener.